Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 2. And uh, I'd also invite you to turn, if you'd like, rip off a a little strip of your bulletin and uh, turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10 and maybe mark that with with your bulletin. We'll We'll be looking in Hebrews chapter 10 just a little bit this morning as well. We're continuing our way through the text, hearing what, uh, what Paul is trying to say in his communication of the gospel to believers, Christians living in the, as a part of the church in Rome. And we come now in chapter 2 to uh, verses 11 to 16, which is where we're going to be spending the bulk of our time this morning. And so as is our custom, I just want to read this passage one more time, and then we'll pray and we'll ask God to help us by the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text. And then we'll get to work. So if you would, just look with me. Verse 11 says, For God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. That's the, that is the grounding. That is the foundation of everything that follows. God is not partial. He shows no partiality. Verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but it is the doers of the law who will be, who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears a witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Let's just pause for a moment and ask God to help us. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for speaking to us this morning in your word. And as we dig into this text this morning, Lord, our prayer is that you would show us once again that you are impartial. Father, help us not to be partial to ourselves, but to look upon each other as you look upon us all, equal in your eyes. And as we reflect upon that truth this morning, Lord, we also pray that you would help us to understand just exactly how it is that we will be convicted and condemned, that it doesn't have so much to do with knowing your law, but knowing the truth. We thank you, God, that you have given us all enough truth, enough understanding, that there is no one who has an excuse. There is no one who will be able to be critical of your judgment on that day when we will all stand before you. It isn't how much of the scriptures we know. We have all that we need. We say thank you for giving that to us. And we pray this morning, Lord, that if there are any here who have never trusted in your son, who have never given their lives to Christ, if they are attempting to justify this refusal to believe on the grounds that they are not certain, that there is not enough knowledge, that they don't know enough, I pray, Lord, you'd open their eyes and convict them that they know more than enough. God, our prayer this morning is that you would help them to see their need for Jesus and so be saved. 
Do this, we pray, God, through your word, by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Christ. Amen. In 1984, an Avianca Airlines Boeing 747 crashed in Spain. It was an international flight from Frankfurt, Germany to Bogota, with stops in Madrid and Caracas. It was a brand new Boeing 747 jet, brand new, right off the assembly line. It hadn't accumulated all that many hours. And it surely shouldn't have had any kind of mechanical difficulties that would have caused it to go down, to crash. Even more eerily, there was never any mayday call for help or any indication of distress that was ever given over the radio by the crew. Investigators that went in to study the accident made an eerie discovery. The black box, that cockpit voice recorder, revealed, when it was reviewed, that several minutes before the plane crashed, there was a shrill computer-synthesized voice that emanated from the plane's automatic cockpit warning system. It was looking at all of the data, and it began to warn the pilots repeatedly in English, pull up, pull up, pull up. They were flying on a slightly downward trajectory, and they were losing altitude without ever even being aware of it, and the computer system began to warn them, pull up, pull up. What was absolutely stunning to investigators was that the pilot, evidently thinking that the system was malfunctioning, reached up to try to find the switch to flip it off, and in his irritation, snapped at the computer, shut up, gringo. Humorous, but tragic. The plane crashed just a few minutes later, killing all 200 on board. You know, as I think about this story of this airline crashing into the mountains in Spain, when the computer was warning them not to crash, was in fact telling them what they needed to do in order to save their lives, I think it is a fitting parable a fitting parable for what so many in our world are doing with regards to their conscience. They are trying to muzzle it. They are trying to silence it. They will not hear it. And in so doing, they are setting themselves up for an even greater eternal disaster. We, uh, we think about all that is going on in the world around us, and the wisdom of our age says that guilty feelings are nearly always erroneous and hurtful, and therefore what we should do is we should seek to overcome those hurtful, guilty feelings through therapy or medication, and we should not pay any attention to those hurtful sort of feelings of guilt. We should try to switch them off, but that's not good advice. That is really not good advice at all. That's terrible advice. In today's text, we're going to be thinking about what that conscience is intended to do. And what we're going to see is as hurtful as that conscience can be from time to time, convicting us, condemning us, that conviction is there. It is a gift from God that he gives to us because he is not partial, and he has given it to us in order that we might be saved. Look with me, verse 11, Romans chapter 2, verse 11. The Apostle Paul says, God is not partial. That is the great principle, that is the great truth that undergirds everything that is about to follow. 
He states this principle, and then he goes on to say that this is why God will judge both the Jews and the Gentiles, not according to their appearance or their circumstances or their cultural or religious advantages. None of these things will matter. God is going to judge everyone. He's going to look beyond external appearances. He's going to look to the heart, and he's going to judge everyone according to what he sees within our hearts. This is something fundamental about God, which we need to consider and dwell on. God is not partial at all. This is such a major truth about God in the New Testament that the authors of scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit had to actually invent a new word in order to describe this characteristic about God. Before the New Testament, within Koine Greek as a language, there are no instances of the word that is used here by Paul to talk about impartiality. It simply didn't exist within the language. As we think about Koine Greek and as we think about the culture at that time, it was the Roman Empire, but it had a lot of uh, vestiges from Greek culture and different things of this nature that still influenced the Roman Empire. And, And as you think about the panoply of gods, the various Zeus and Athena and all these different gods that they would worship, all of these gods, one thing they do is they play favorites, They have certain people they like. They have certain people that they give beneficial treatment to. And of course, as people living under this grand sort of you know, you know, overarching mythology of all of these different deities that are, that are reigning uh, under Zeus, with Zeus, of course, being the, the chief god, uh, we're encouraged to play favorites as well. If we're a sailor and we're getting ready to go on a trip across the ocean, we might be encouraged to offer sacrifices to Poseidon. Or you know, if we're doing different things, we're going to be encouraged to give different sacrifices and offer different worship to different gods, and we're going we're gonna to play favorites. And of course, they're playing favorites. So within this culture of Greek language, there's never this idea that we should ever act impartially. Now, as Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome, writing it in Koine Greek, he now has to search for a word to describe this attribute of God, which no word exists in the, New, in the Koine Greek language at this time to describe him. So he invents a word. And that's what we see here. He invents a word. He combines two words, in fact. Uh, the, the idea here is that God does not receive Face, okay? And so the words which Paul uses are a combination of face and receive. He is not a face receiver. In other words, and we see this idea again in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, the idea here is that when God looks on us, he doesn't look at our merely external appearances and then decide how he's going to treat us. In this sense, God is not a receiver of faces. Instead, he looks upon the heart And he looks upon the motivations that go into our decisions from within the heart. In the New Testament, this idea is so important to make clear that they take these two words, receive face, and they combine them into a new verb in James chapter 2, which we'll look at in a a minute. And the encouragement in James chapter 2 is that as Christians, we're not to be face receivers. In other words, we're to be impartial. And uh, we see it also used in the book of Acts, and we also see it here, obviously, in the book of of Romans. This idea is pervasive that we ourselves, as those following Christ, following God, the one true God, are not to play favorites. We are to be impartial. And to make sure that you agree and you understand that this word is looking on external circumstances, you don't have to flip there, but I just invite you to listen to this usage in the book of James. James chapter 2 James, writing to the church, says, My brothers, show no partiality. Again, it's that that same word that literally means don't be face receivers. 
He says, don't show partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your church, okay, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothing, and you say, you sit here and you have the good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there in the back of the room, or you can sit down here at my feet. James goes on to say, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So in that context, the way that James is using it, he says, don't show partiality. And then he goes on to describe two different kinds of individuals based purely on their clothing, external appearances. So even there, as he's encouraging the church not to be receivers or respecters of persons, not to be showing partiality, the idea is that we are not to judge based on external appearances because God doesn't judge upon external appearances. He looks at the heart. Now, coming back to Romans chapter 2, what he says here is that God is not partial. And from that grounding, that theological foundation, that God doesn't look on the external, he sees to the heart, this, from this flows the pronouncement. Verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but it is the doers of the law who will be justified. And so Paul makes this statement. He says, God is not partial. He will judge us. But here, there's an objection that can immediately be raised. Wait a minute. You say God's not partial, but this is partiality. You see, some people have received Scripture. Some people have been given the Old Testament. You you formed this whole nation of Jews, descendants of Abraham, and you've blessed them with all this advantage. They've been given Scripture, the Decalogue, Ten Commandments, all these things. And they know more concretely and more sh- with more certainty what it is you desire of them to do, whereas all the rest of us Gentiles out here, we're just sort of swinging out in the wind. We haven't been given the scriptures. We haven't been invited to be part of the covenants of God, to be circumcised and to become part of the covenant people. They surely have advantages that we do not have. And that's an, obje- that's an objection that comes up quite often in defending Christianity from its various critics. Undoubtedly, many of you have sat down and tried to share the gospel with a friend of yours, and I can bear witness to this because this happened to me when I was a teenager in high school. You sat down and you tried to say to your friend, you need to believe in Jesus. He is the truth, the way, and the life, and nobody's going to come to the Father except by Christ. And you've emphasized that Christ is the only way to heaven. And their response has been something like this. How can you possibly say that when there are so many religions in the world? How can any of us possibly know that Christianity is the only true faith with so many on the buffet from which we can can look at and consider. How, How can we know that with any certainty? Well, Paul's response here, and this is important for us to consider, he does not acknowledge that objection. Say, wait, some people have advantages, other people don't. We, we can't know what we're supposed to do given all the, all the different options that are out there. He drills down now to the conscience. 
Look at what he says. He says, if you go back and you look at at, uh, verse uh, 14, he says, when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves even though they do not have the law. And in verse 15, he says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conflicting conscience also bears witness. So here is what he says. He says that the law of Moses will not be brought in, that is scripture, Old Testament, it will not be brought in on the day of judgment by God in order to condemn those who sinned without access to the law of Moses or the Old Testament, right? He says God's not going to bring in the Old Testament to condemn those who did not have access to the Old Testament. God isn't going to bring in the scriptures to condemn those who did not have access to the scriptures. He says the scriptures, in this case, Old Testament, law of Moses, he says it will only be used to judge those who had access to it. So God is going to be perfectly fair and perfectly righteous in how he judges us. Paul says that while the Gentiles do not have the law in the form of the scriptures, in the form of the law of Moses, he goes on to say that nevertheless, quote, the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. We all know that there is morality. We all know that there is right and that there is wrong. And you'll recall, we looked at this several weeks ago, when I used the example of budging in line. I always kind of struggle to say that, budging in line. When I was a kid, we called it cutting in line. Here, they call it budging in line. That's so polite to say that. (laughs) Such a nice way of trying to dress up what is ultimately theft, you know. (laughs) You've been waiting here patiently. I have not. I don't care about you. I'm just going to budge in front of you. You're cutting. You're stealing. You're taking. That's what it is. And, of course, when they say, when somebody cuts in front of us, or as we, you know, in good British politeness would say, as somebody budges in front of us, we'd say, hey, how dare you? That's wrong. I've been waiting here this whole time. And, of course, they might argue with us. Nobody ever steps back and says, hey, how dare you appeal to this moral law to criticize me? Nobody ever says, down with your standards, man. I have my own rules. Nobody says that. What we do instead is we begin to justify ourselves. Say there's an exception for why I am allowed to cut or budge in line. You need to allow this obvious departure from decorum, this obvious theft that is taking place needs to be accepted by you because I have extenuating circumstances. Well, Paul says that on the day of judgment, when we come before the Lord, it is clear that God did not give special revelation to everyone. That is, we did not all have a copy of the scripture available to us. And the objection might be raised on that day. How dare you, God? You can't judge me and send me to hell because I never got a copy of the scriptures. Or we might say, you know what? Someone gave me a Bible. In fact, I was at a hotel somewhere and I pulled open that drawer on the nightstand and I got a copy of that Gideon's Bible, but I never actually had the time to read it. I never actually cracked it open in order to see what it said. So 
I was in complete ignorance. I had no knowledge of what you required of me. And therefore, because I didn't know, you can't judge me and send me to hell because I didn't know. And Paul says, no, actually, you did know. You did know. With incredible discernment, Paul says, God judges those lacking God's word by judging how well they lived according to the sense of right and wrong which he wrote on their hearts. No, God has not given God's word to everyone. But to suggest that somehow he is unfair or unjust in condemning us to hell because we didn't read the Bible is the slam God for something for which he is ultimately not responsible for. You see, God is impartial. He has not played favorites. He has not chosen winners and losers. Indeed, he has revealed his moral law to all of us. All of us know what is right and what is wrong. Some of us have humbled ourselves and turned to Christ, while others of us, as Paul has said previously in this same chapter, have hardened ourselves and refused to turn to Christ. The question here is not, did we have enough information? The question here is not, did we read enough Bible? The question here is not, did we have enough knowledge? Indeed, the scriptures say that we do. The question is, what did we do with the knowledge that God, in his perfect fairness gave to us. What did we do with that? Did we humble ourselves and receive it, or did we reject it? That is what Paul is driving at here. Sweden's great theologian, Anders Nygren, writing in his commentary on the book of Romans, makes this point very succinctly. He says, quote, the heathen's conscience stands as an objective witness, showing that he actually knew all along that what he was doing was wrong. He talks about the conscience. And indeed, that's what our text says. Nope, we did not have the Bible necessarily. We did not bother or trouble ourselves to read the scripture. But we actually had a conscience that convicted us and spoke to us from time to time whenever we did wrong. So God looks upon the heart and God's judgment is so perfect that he takes into account one's moral perception as he renders his judgment. To be sure, no one escapes God's judgment. It says here that it is the doers of law who will be justified. But the reality is, as Paul is going to make clear here in the next chapter, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All stand under his judgment. None will measure up. But most importantly, when God says this, or sorry, when, Roman, when Paul says this in Romans, when God says this through Paul, he says it isn't the hearers of the law who will be judged. It is the doers of the law who will be judged. And so you read that and you might think to yourself, oh, so there's a chance if I do the law, I'll be righteous before the Lord. Indeed, there is a chance. Now just ask yourself the question, have you done the law? And of course, immediately all of us, if we take an honest look at our lives, say, of course I haven't done the law. Over and over again, I read liberal theologian after liberal theologian raising the possibility that here Paul is indicating that there's somehow something we can do in order to make ourselves right with God. Perhaps he is, but let's be realistic. Who among us has followed the law perfectly? Only one. And his name was Jesus. And it's none of you in this room. Which brings us to the second thing that Paul is really hammering here in this passage. Our conscience. 
You see, liberal theologian among, upon liberal theologian might raise the possibility that there is a way for you to be saved if you just do the law. But as soon as we actually try to wrestle with that question, have I done the law as the law has commanded me to do it, not as I would define it? Our conscience begin to convict us. And that's what he says here. Richard Sibbs, that famous Puritan, once wrote in the 17th century that the conscience is the soul reflecting upon itself. The soul reflecting upon itself. Conscience is at the heart of what distinguishes the human creature. People, unlike animals, are capable of contemplating their own actions and making moral self-evaluations. We're capable of understanding the rightness or the wrongness of what we do. That's what, that's what Richard Sibbs is saying. The conscience is the innate ability to sense right and wrong. Everyone, even the most unspiritual of unbelievers, has a conscience. It's the way you were made. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 15 says, When the Gentiles who do not have the law, that is, they do not have a copy of Scripture, uh, by nature do what the law requires, he says they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness. So it's testifying. The conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or perhaps in certain other situations might excuse them. But the reality of what Paul is touching on here is that we have indeed all of us a conscience that condemns us. The conscience entreats us to do what we believe is right. And uh, you're familiar, obviously, with those cartoons that we probably all saw as kids where we'd have like a good angel on one shoulder and a little devil on the other shoulder. And we are confronted with a moral question. And the good angel is like, no, 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 don't do that. And, of course, the little devil on the other shoulder is saying to us, yes, do that. That'll be fun. Do that. And, of course, time and again, we've had this experience where we're like, you know, I'd like to do this, but... I don't think I should. I feel like it's probably not right. And yet we do it. We do it. And so it's a human faculty that we all have that judges our actions and our thoughts by the light of the highest standards that we are capable of perceiving. So even though we don't all of us in this world, we haven't all of us read scripture, we are still capable of perceiving right and wrong. And our conscience has been attuned to that perception. We have this moral law that we all wrestle with And when we violate that moral law, when we violate our conscience, which perceives that morality, it then condemns us. And it triggers feelings of shame and anguish and regret. We feel anxiety. We feel disgrace. And above all, we feel fear. Oh, no. Somebody might find out what I've done. The shame and the fear leads us into hiding. Every single person here can if you think about it, can recall a time when we did something we knew was wrong and we just spent hours agonizing over it. I remember I got my first job working at Ace Hardware in Dripping Springs, Texas, population 1008. We had like one customer every 12 hours. We didn't do a lot of business there. And I remember I was at school one day and I did something that I'm still ashamed of to this day. I remember I went to work 
And I felt bad about it afterwards. And I remember my boss had told me I needed to go restock the nails and the nail bins. Not that the nail bins needed restocking because we didn't ever have that many customers come in buying nails all the time. But there I am putting the penny nails, various sizes, nails in the different bins. And I remember I just stopped at one point and I just stared at the nail bins and I, I wasn't even thinking about nails. I was just replaying over and over and over and over again in my head what I had done and how wrong it was and how bad I felt. And I remember my boss came up to me at one point and says, you've been staring at that nail bin for an hour and a half. And it had only felt like maybe 30 or 40 seconds. Surely all of us can bear witness to that. Your conscience is telling you that you deserve judgment. Everyone has a conscience. Multitudes today respond to their conscience by attempting to suppress it, to overrule it, to silence it, to muzzle it. We feel bad, so we go for therapy. We just want to talk it all out to somebody who essentially is going to tell us at the end of the day, it's okay. Don't feel bad. Feel happy. We want to hear a different voice. We don't want to hear the voice of truth. Problem is that those competing voices are not always effective. So then we say, you know what? I'm, I'm just not feeling better after all this time in therapy talking. Will you please prescribe me some antidepressants? Now, don't misunderstand me, church. We do have mental health conditions. Bipolarism is a real thing. There are real documented issues with the human brain that can lead to emotional problems. But I am convinced that 90% of what passes for a mental health struggle is really just a guilty conscience that refuses to come to the table before the Lord and reckon with him for his forgiveness. I am convinced that 90% of what passes for mental health in our day and age is individuals who are hardening their hearts against the truth and looking for a way to silence and suppress and muzzle their conscience. It is as though we are all in that Avianca Airlines flight and the buzzer sounds out, pull up, pull up, pull up. And we are sick of hearing it. So we look for a way to turn it off and we're all of us saying to it, shut up, gringo, shut up. Don't want to hear it anymore. It is possible to nullify the conscience through repeated abuse. The scriptures tell us, and Paul speaks of it in Philemon and later on in Romans. He speaks of people whose consciences are so convoluted that they glory in their shame. They sear their conscience Both the mind and the conscience can become so defiled that they eventually cease making distinctions between what is pure and what is right, what is impure and what is wrong. And after so much time and constant violation, the conscience finally falls silent. We can't hear it anymore. We've muzzled it. We've effectively been able to shut off the cockpit warning as we fly into catastrophe. Morally, those with defiled consciences are left flying blind. The warning signals are gone, but the danger is not. The danger is not. But here is a startling truth. Look back at verse 15. Though you muzzle and silence your conscience, it will not stay muzzled forever. You may effectively abuse your conscience so much that it ceases to speak to you, but it does not 
stop recording everything that is happening in the cockpit. I remember my brother coming home one day. And uh, I was in my bedroom doing homework. This is when we were in high school. And he comes running into the bedroom, and he's like, hey, check it out. I bought all this candy. And I'm like, oh, where, what? Like, I thought you were, he was supposed to be at the library after school doing homework. I'm like, you bought candy? I thought you were supposed to be in the library. My brother kind of stares at the ceiling. You know, when people are about to lie, they kind of look up and over, and they're like, "Mm." he says, oh, no, like, this is after the library. Mom took me to the store and bought me candy. So being the 13-year-old kid with an innate, perfect sense of justice, a twin, mind you, I said to myself, why would mom buy you candy and not me candy? Why don't I have some candy? So I proceeded to storm out of the bedroom, and I began to yell down the hall, mom! And immediately I felt a hand clamp over my mouth. And I was dragged backwards into the bedroom. Okay, okay, fine, fine. That's not what really happened. I was supposed to be at the library studying, but I skipped, and I went to the the store. I walked down the street to the store, and I bought candy, and then I walked back to the library just before Mom came to pick me up. I had been silenced for a moment. Now, if he wants me to continue to stay silent, he's got to buy me off with some of that candy. Now, how much candy do you think it would take to silence an accusing brother? It would take all of it. (laughs) Every last little piece of chocolate bar and Skittle and M&M. I want it all. Of course, such a price is too steep. So down the hall I went to oust my brother. This is your conscience. Look at what the text says. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience, notice this, also bears witness. You are capable of silencing your conscience so that it does not torment you, but there is a day coming in which your conscience will testify. And this is the most chilling thing about this whole passage. Every time we said no, every time we refused it, every time we would not listen to our conscience, over time our conscience stopped speaking to us, but it did not stop observing what we were doing and the fact that we knew what we were doing is wrong and it is waiting for its day in court. Look at what Paul says here. Their conscience bears witness. This is courtroom language. Their conscience is going to testify against you. When? When will it testify? Verse 16, on that day, Paul says, when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The most haunting thing about this passage is not necessarily that we are capable of knowing right and wrong. The most haunting thing about this passage is not that we routinely sin and abuse our consciences and act in manners that we know are wrong. The most haunting thing about this passage that stands out to me and which I pray would stand out to you is that there is a day coming in which we will stand before the Lord of glory and he'll begin to play out all the sins and all the the transgressions of our lives and from within our own own souls, we will say, you are right. We will know that he was right 
we will testify against ourselves. You see, here's the big trick that we pull in subduing our conscience is that we talk ourselves into this scenario that we think is going to happen. We'll go before the Lord on the day of judgment. The Lord will say, you did these things wrong, and we'll begin to haggle like we observe people haggling in a court of law in this day and age. We'll think to ourselves, I can maybe pull off some sort of a plea agreement. Maybe I can convince him that I didn't really know what I was doing. We think that's what it will be like, but it won't be like that. The reality is, is when we go before the Lord on the day of judgment, the Lord will say, you did wrong, and he'll replay the life that you lived. And there will be no haggling. Your conscience, your soul, from within your own heart, it will rise up in obedience to the Lord and say, you were right. I am that horrible and deserve the full measure of whatever wrath you're about to pour out upon me. You will be like that 13, 14-year-old kid that had a part-time job in Ace Hardware that did something horrifically shameful and spent all afternoon staring at penny nails, regretting and broken and hurting for all that he had done. There will be no haggling. You will not feel justified. You will be tormented And I'm not sure that the physical torment will even be as bad as the spiritual torment as you are there knowing you deserve everything. This sort of fictitious scenario that we dream up of ourselves kind of haggling before God on the day of judgment, only people with hardened consciences believe that's how it's going to be. I want to speak to you tenderly now as your pastor. I know there are people here who have given their lives to Christ and yet they still think back on things that they did when they were kids or or even more recently than that as young adults and their conscience still convicts them and they've trusted in Jesus, they've received the forgiveness of the blood of Christ but they still struggle with these feelings of guilt and shame. I've been there. I know what you're going through. Perhaps you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not a Christian (laughs) And I struggle with these feelings of guilt and shame. What do I do? And the answer is the same. Whether you're a believer who still struggles with feelings of guilt, whether you're an unbeliever standing in condemnation. The answer is Jesus. And it's a sweet answer. It's the greatest answer. It's the only answer. I'm happy to say the answer is Jesus because it was my answer. It's God's answer. It's Scripture's answer. You've probably been to therapy if you've ever had serious guilt in your life and you probably found that it didn't work. Nothing will work. That's the reality. But there is one who can take away your guilty conscience. I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. And I want you to hear this sweet, sweet promise. One aspect of the miracle of salvation is the cleansing and the rejuvenating effect that conversion to Christ has upon our conscience. At the moment of salvation, the believer's heart is sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, Hebrews 10, 22. Read it with me. Look, Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to pick it up a little bit before verse 22. We're going to go all the way back to verse 19. I read this at the start of the worship service, and I want you to hear it again. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... 
by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. Verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Notice this. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. An evil conscience can be taken away by the blood of Jesus. That's what the passage is saying. The means through which the conscience is cleansed is by the cross of our Lord. That doesn't mean, of course, that Jesus' blood, his dying on the cross, has some sort of mystical or magical sort of effect. But it raises the question then, what does it mean to have our consciences sprinkled by the blood of Christ? The theological concepts involved here are simple, but they're profound. The Old Testament law required blood sacrifices in order to atone for sin. Okay, all well and good, fair enough. But it goes on to say that these sacrifices that were offered could never remove the guilty conscience. The Old Testament sacrifices could do nothing in that regard. In Hebrews chapter 9, in verses 9 and 10, the author of Hebrews writes, quote, according to this arrangement, this Old Testament system of sacrifice, He says, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So this idea of conscience is being run, it's like a thread that runs all the way through the book of Hebrews. He goes on that these sacrifices could never perfect our conscience, verse 10, but they deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation, until the time of Christ. So those sacrifices had no actual effect in atoning for sin. Because, as the author of Hebrews says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All these sacrifices in the Old Testament did was they simply demonstrated that faith and obedience of the worshiper to God was necessary while foreshadowing the coming one, the Messiah, and pointing us to the death of Christ. So Christ's sacrifice on the cross, therefore, accomplishes what goats and bulls' blood could never accomplish. As Peter says in in 1 Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So our sins are transferred to Jesus, and he dies on the cross, and he bears the penalty for our sins in himself on the cross. All well and good. But did you know something more comes? Something more than simply forgiveness. Our sins are imputed to Jesus. But the scriptures also make clear his righteousness is imputed to us. The guilt of all of our sins is erased and all his righteousness is credited to our account by faith. That's the doctrine known as justification. So when God looks at us, his verdict is not merely not guilty. When God looks at us, his verdict is perfectly holy and absolutely righteous. Of course, you didn't do it. You never could have. God does it for you. And he was always intending that that would be the path of salvation for all of us through the blood of his son. And so as we come back to Romans, Paul will ask later on in the book of Romans, Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? In Romans 8, he says, Who is ever going to make an accusation against us that will ever stick? 
He says, God is the one who, who justifies. Who, therefore, is able to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and yes, who was raised, who is now at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. In other words, when the greatest accuser that ever is or ever will be, namely Satan, comes to the day of judgment to the courtroom and tries to accuse us and tries to point the finger at us and tries to say, this person is guilty, Paul's question is, how could that ever possibly work? Because Satan, as great and horrifically powerful as he is, is not more than Jesus. Jesus is in our corner. He is our advocate. And Satan is there to prosecute the case against us, to say, you're guilty, you're condemned. But Jesus is bigger than Satan. Now, is your conscience bigger than Satan? No, it's not. As good as you are at blaming yourself, as good as you are at telling yourself that you deserve to die and to go to hell, and as true as those things might be, you will never be as effective at prosecuting your own punishment as Satan is you are never going to be as meaningful, as good, or as great of an accuser as Satan is. And the scriptures tell us that Satan himself must bow before Christ. So the question is, are you capable of accusing yourself in such a way that you're able to prove Jesus wrong? Of course not. Of course not. Whenever our own conscience would mercilessly condemn us, the blood of Christ and Christ himself cries out for our forgiveness. Christ's atonement fully satisfied the demands of God's righteousness. So forgiveness and mercy are guaranteed to those who receive Christ in humble faith. Humble faith. Sure, we accept the responsibility for our sin, but we must also believe and have faith that God, in the death of Christ, has forgiven us of our sin. This is how the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God in order to cleanse your conscience from dead works in order to serve the living God. In other words, it's our faith which we must lean into in order to communicate to our conscience that though we are guilty, we are pardoned. The blood of Christ will silence and satisfy a guilty conscience. If your conscience is hurting you, then I would soothe it. But I will not soothe your conscience with empty platitudes and useless therapeutic encouragements that amount to nothing more than me just patting you on the head saying, there, there, it's okay, everything's going to work out all right. If your conscience hurts you today, then my encouragement to you as your pastor is that you would soothe the hurt of that conscience by looking to the blood of Jesus Christ and not merely looking to it and understanding it in an academic, intellectual way, but understanding it for what it really is, the most precious thing in this universe that God has given for you. You are not bigger or more heinous in your sinning than the blood of Jesus is in its goodness to forgive. When we evangelize, 
it would be good for us to remember that there are two witnesses that go with us into that spiritual conflict. The Holy Spirit goes with us and supports our testimony and supports our words and supports the word of Scripture above all. But the one to whom we witness also has a conscience. It may be silent. It may be muzzled. But we can awaken it. It can be roused from its slumber because the truth remains and the conscience knows right from wrong. We must pay attention to our own consciences and we must pay attention to the consciences of those around us. Of all people, we who are committed to the truth of Scripture, we cannot relinquish the importance of having a sound conscience and we must speak to men's consciences wherever we can when we evangelize and share the good news. As we close today, if you hear your conscience condemning you, trust in Jesus. Trust in the blood. Doesn't matter if you've been walking with Christ for 30 years. Doesn't matter if you are here today and you have never received Christ. There is one who can save. His name is Jesus. If you hear your conscience warning you, do not hush it. Look up to the Lord. Father in heaven, our prayer this morning as we close is that you would save any among us who struggle with a condemned conscience convicted in their sin who continue to refuse to trust in you. Lord, I pray this morning that as we close, Father, as we come to the end of your word, that if there are any here who think that someday they're going to be able to haggle and argue with you on the day of judgment, that you would just strip that illusion from them, that they would know, Lord, that they know enough to be guilty. But I pray, Lord, that you would help them to realize they have a passenger riding along with them who has not been silent for, for, forever, though he may be silenced today. God, our prayer this morning is if there are any here who do not know you, that you would awaken their conscience. Do this, we pray, in the name of Christ.